When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett. On this episode, celebrating the canon of Sean Connery and James Bond. You can't imagine David Niffen getting into jujitsu fights like Connery did. So Niven embodied half of the Bond persona, but not the complete Bond persona. The more weird choice was from Ian Fleming himself, I think, that he envisioned the American musician Hoagie Carmichael as Bond. Check out the huge selection of Strange Planet merchandise in my online shop. Go to strangeplanet.ca and click on Shop in the menu or find the link in the episode notes for this podcast. At my Strange Planet shop, you'll find unique men's, women's, unisex t-shirts and athletic shirts, leggings, tote bags, mugs, neck gaiters, and stickers and more. All emblazoned with amazing artwork designed exclusively for my Strange Planet shop by artist-illustrator Rick Forgus. If you're a fan of Strange Planet, why not show it off? Go to strangeplanet.ca and click on shop. Or go to the episode notes for this podcast and click on the link. It's a strange planet. Dress for it. Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serres. Pursuing the truth wherever it leads. Exposing evil and corruption and the secret machinations of powerful elites. Revealing the high strangeness beneath the surface of our supposed reality. Coming to you from his studio beneath the stairs, here's Richard Serrett. Welcome to your Monday. Pop culture historian, award-winning comic book style illustrator Arlen Schumer is standing by. And today we begin a series celebrating the canon of James Bond. We'll look at the first four films, Dr. No, From Russia With Love, GoldenEye, and Thunderball. Today, part one, we'll look at Dr. No. Now, before we get Arlen in here, a reminder that I'll be hosting Coast to Coast AM this coming Saturday, April the 3rd. You can go to coasttocoastam.com for more information. And don't forget to check out my brand new radio program, The Richard Serrett Show, weekday afternoons from 4 to 6 p.m. Eastern on Saga 960 AM. You can stream it live at saga960am.ca. Saga, as in Mississauga, the city of Mississauga, S-A-U-G-A, saga960am.ca. 
Arlen Schumer is an award-winning comic book-style illustrator for the advertising and editorial markets and a member of the Society of Illustrators, an author-designer of coffee table art books, including Visions from the Twilight Zone and The Silver Age of Comic Book Art, which won the Independent Book Publishers Award for Best Popular Culture Book. He's also a recognized expert on American popular culture, especially the legendary television series The Twilight Zone and the music of Bruce Springsteen, presenting his visual lectures on these and other subjects at universities and cultural institutions across the country and around the world. Hey, Arlen, welcome back. How are you, my friend? Hey, Richard. I'm great. Great to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Always have a great time talking with you. All right. Let's talk about the four films in the uh, Sean Connery canon. Dr. No, we'll talk about Dr. No. That one is come and gone, but it's still available online. People can see it. We'll tell them how to watch that. And we'll also talk about the next three that are coming up from Russia with Love, Goldfinger, and Thunderball. Why don't we start there? When can they see the final three of the four in the canon? Okay, so I haven't technically locked in dates yet, but I'm going to try to keep to the sort of third Wednesday of each of the next three months. Uh, always at 6 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. And the information I always will post um, on my website, there's an events page where people can click on, and it's arlenschumer.com, but when they get to the homepage, there's a little um, icon for events, and you click on that, and it's got all the information of all my webinars and whatever else I'm doing. So the 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 they're all Zoom meetings, you know, the ones I'm doing on my own for free are Zoom meetings. So I'll always list the meeting number and the passcode and the URL link and things like that. And then if if people are on Facebook, um, I'm on social media, so I always post my stuff on Facebook, on Instagram, on Twitter, on Tumblr, um, on LinkedIn. So pretty much. I, I try to, you know, post all my information on all those social media platforms, but you can go to my website and you'll always find my information there. All right. So we begin with Dr. No. Yes. The first Bond film that came out in 1962, but it, it wasn't, I think it was the sixth novel that actually, that Ian Fleming right. wrote. So right. why did Saltzman and Broccoli, the producers, decide to, to begin with the sixth book of Fleming, Dr. No. I think they chose it because it was a relatively, the key word is relatively, inexpensive film to shoot since they were only able to secure a million dollar budget from their partner at United Artists. Now, a million dollars in 1962 dollars is obviously a lot more, you know, in, in today's numbers. But back then, that was considered a modest budget for first time, you know, of a, a film idea like James Bond. So I think the idea that they could shoot it in one location in Jamaica and in the Pinewood Studios. And I think that's why they chose um, Dr. No. And it, it, it's interesting by contrast with other John, James Bond films because there's, we don't see any of the fancy gadgets in this one, right? Right. But Bond is right. kind of left up to his own wits and he has to improvise and things like that. Talk well, to me about- Well, the only gadget yeah. was his gun right. and that license to kill. And in Dr. No is the only time in any of the Connery films 
that he literally shoots somebody in cold blood six feet away directly. And after the first film, he never does that again. I think the producers even realized that was too intense. Even though that was the definition of a license to kill, never again does Bond shoot somebody that directly, that cold-bloodedly. In future films, he shoots people with his gun, but from far away. Like in From Rush With Love, the next film, there's a big gang fight with the gypsies and the mm-hmm. and the Bulgars, and uh, you know, Bond is shooting his guns just like everybody else is shooting guns, but not six feet away directly when they were basically defenseless. Right, and I guess the other thing that, that's interesting about Dr. No is because it's the first one, it hadn't become a franchise yet. Obviously. And so, you know, all of the these things were fresh. You know, James Bond, the lighting yep. of the cigarette, and the, uh, yep. did, we, did, he, did he order a martini uh, shaken, not stirred in this one, or did that come it's later? Inter- it's interesting, Dr. No serves him a martini shaken, not stirred, when he has Bond at his lair. Now, it's assumed that somehow Dr. No knew what Bond liked to drink because Bond didn't order it. It's not like sometimes in some movies where he tells the, uh, you know, the henchman to the bad guy, I'll have a dry martini, shake it, not stir it. You know, mm, right, right. that doesn't happen. So that's how it's actually introduced in Dr. No. It's by Dr. No himself. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. And, and that, that trademark line, Bond, James Bond, that was that was improvised, wasn't it? No. No? It's it in was, the script. It is in the script. Okay. It was in the script. Well, as far as I know, it was in the script. Um, see, but again, you know, I guess what I'm saying is, there's a level of trivia to anything and there's a level of trivia to bond films just like i'm a twilight zone fan right there are books on the twilight zone that tell you where every production dollar was spent if you were to ask me questions about the twilight zone at that level right right i don't don't know that stuff to me there's trivia and there's trivial right right and one man's definition of one is not another from the other. But like I said, um, for me, that scene is more about the way the way the scene played out, that perfect timing between the click of the cigarette lighter. Yes. I mean, if you really watch that scene, the introduction of Connery as Bond, it's really beautifully choreographed. In the way he says Bond, and the lighter clicks, and he takes the puff, pauses, James Bond. What I would like to know is how is that scene created? Was that Terrence Young, the director? Right. Was that Connery? Was it written in the script? This is a level of stuff I don't really know about, but to me, that's what makes that that scene fascinating, uh, is, the, is, the, is the, and I'll give most of the credit to Terrence Young, the the director right because in the end the director is responsible for how a scene plays out and the like i said it's a it's a mini masterpiece of timing body language and a lot of it obviously is connery but it's like where that magnetism that magic substance x that mystery ingredient that makes something timeless and classic 
Right. Well, you mentioned you know, yeah. how that came about. How many rehearsals was it? Did they shoot it in one take? Maybe there's a Bond book out there that discusses that level of detail. Right. Because to me, that would be fascinating to find out. Terrence Young isn't alive anymore. Obviously, Connery passed away last year. But you know what I mean? That's what I would love to know is how did that perfect timing of script, acting, lighting, just the whole mise-en-scene, if I'm using that French expression right, the whole way that little introduction plays out. I'll never forget, Ayn Rand, in one of her essays about art, talked about going to see Dr. No. And the audience, when Connery introduced himself as Bond in that specific scene, she said the audience burst out with applause. So just think about that effect to first-time audiences. Right, right. That, you know, when he introduced himself that way. And by the way, in my research in Dr. No, the director, Terrence Young, based that mystery reveal, if you remember the way that scene was shot at the Chemin de Fer table, you don't see Connery at first. You just hear his voice. Right. You look at the woman, Sylvia Trench, and then you see Bond from like a three-quarter back view. And Terrence Young, the director, builds up the suspense. And I believe it comes from, and of course, I need my notes to read it, but it comes from like a film noir from like 1949 or something. Um, you know, some film that he had seen with, um, again, my, my mind's a blank. Uh, the, the actor was famous. Um, it was kind of a Spanish setting, like a war film. And, and, the, and the lead character was introduced in a very mysterious way like that. It was built up and then he was revealed. And that's where Terrence Young got the idea for that scene to reveal Bond as a buildup. Right. So you get that cathartic final scene with the cigarette lighter. And that, and then, of course, John Barry's theme comes in just as he lights the cigarette. I mean, right, you right. know, it was, the, it was the great meeting of all those elements. And that's why an audience burst out in applause in 1963 when Ayn Rand saw it. That idea of a cold opening before the, the opening credits, because um, right. I remember, you know, that, that's one of the things I find a lot of these old vintage movies where the opening credits are so long before you actually get into the the movie. But the right. idea of a cold opening, was, was that sort of something that, that Terrence Young or, the, or Broccoli and Saltzman introduced into films? Because I don't remember that happening before. Right. No, I believe, you know, I make it a point in my webinar series that I started with Dr. No to talk about how these Bond Connery films, especially the first four, are the beginnings of the action film genre. They're the beginnings of the 1960s. The opening graphics by Maurice Binder or Binder are, are brand new in movies. Yeah, Saul Bass had done some interesting things with Hitchcock. But the Bond titles were new for the 60s. Saw Bass was still the 50s. The Bond films are new. The editing by Peter Hunt 
is the quick style of editing that is the modern style of editing. That was introduced with the Bond films. There wasn't a film that was cut that way. The style of fighting, Bob Simmons, the stuntman, you know, the, the Bond films introduced jujitsu and all these new types of fighting. Whereas you look at guys fighting in the 1950s or 40s, you know, watch Humphrey Bogart do fisticuffs once in a while. You know, it looks very simple and very plain. But then you get the Bond movies and you get all this, you know, somersaults and jujitsu and the quick cutting. And that's not only the editor, Peter Hunt, but the director, Terrence Young, wanting to do it this way. And then the elements of sound design were, were, were brand new in the Bond films. Those intense sound effects. When Bond and Robert Shaw are fighting in the train car in From Russia With Love, right. which is the greatest close quarter fight scene, not only in Bond history, but in movie history. There is yeah. no other close quarters fight scene like the five minute fight or what seems like five minutes is probably less in in that train car. But when you watch that scene and I'll be talking about this next month in my From Russia With Love webinar. But when you watch that scene, it's like the Citizen Kane of fight scenes in the sense that the lighting, the sound design, when when Bond, when Connery is taking Shaw's head in his arms and slamming his body into the doors of the train car, listen to the sound effects. They are so upfront in the mix, louder and bashier than really it had ever been done before in movies. No fight scene was ever choreographed, edited, and, and sound designed that way. And right. that's what made it fresh for the 60s, and that's what made it timeless to this day. Right. I, I know we want to focus on Dr. No, but I just wanted, you mentioned that fight scene. I remember watching that and thinking, it's, it's inescapable. There's no way James Bond is going to get out of this. Right. And then, of course, <laughs> the wonderful briefcase. Um, right. So getting back to Dr. No uh, and, and the casting of Sean Connery, he wasn't the first choice, right? Right. Some of the other names, like even David Niven, Rex Harrison, Cary Grant. Uh, yeah. why, why did they settle on Connery and whose choice was that? Well, they would have liked Cary Grant because Cubby Broccoli, uh, they were like friends with uh, Cary Grant. But... Grant declined because he knew it wouldn't just be one film. They wanted an actor to, they saw that this could be a series. They wanted it to be a series. The Bond books, again, six or seven books had been out by then. They were all million sellers. You know, the, the idea that they didn't know, you know, this was going to be a series. They were hoping Dr. No would perform well so they could do a series. So that's why Grant declined the role because he knew they wanted a guy and he, he wouldn't have been interested at that stage in his career in being locked into a series. So and, he, he declined it. And David uh, Niven, of course, later played well, sort of the, the, the Casino Royale, but was kind of a send-up of it was a the farce, James Bond. It was a yeah. campy post-Batman yeah. TV show version of Bond. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's just, you know, coincidental, ironic, or they intended it, like, because he was once thought of because Niven embodies the idea of the gentleman spy 
you know, today's Bond, Daniel Craig, he's really a Jason Bourne, yeah. you know, bloodthirsty fighter machine, which is the style of movie tough guys now. They're remorseless, grim fighting machines. Bond was never supposed to be that. He was a gentleman spy. You know, he was Ian Fleming's wish fulfillment right. of himself as tall, dark, and handsome. Right. And, but, but also upper class and sophisticated. Where, right. Well, that's what I mean. Yeah. He was the gentleman. He was a British gentleman who knew the finest things in life and all the, and that's all, again, Terrence Young taught Connery all that stuff. Terrence Young, the director of three of the first four films, is as much a father of the cinematic bond as Ian Fleming is. At least that's the case I make in my webinars, that, that he was just as influential. But that's why David Niven was thought of because he embodied the gentleman aspect. You can't imagine David Niffin getting into jujitsu fights no. like Connery did. So so Niven embodied half of the Bond persona, but not the complete Bond persona. Um, the more weirdest choice was from Ian Fleming himself, I think, that he envisioned the American musician Hoagie Carmichael. Oh my God. As Bond. <laughs> now, in my webinar in Dr. No, I show an illustration that Fleming had commissioned before the movies were made of what he in his mind's eye or interpreted through an illustrator, what he thought Bond should look like. And it was a bit of a rakish, you know, it looked to me when I first saw it more like Basil Rathbone. You know, which another English gentleman spy type guy, Sherlock right? Sherlock Holmes. Holmes. Yeah. So, so um, when you look at Hoagie Carmichael from that era with this drawing, you can kind of sort of see it, but still, you know, I can't believe that. And he was an American, not British, but whatever. But uh, Young himself preferred the British actor named Richard Johnson who nobody really remembers today, but he was like a relatively well-known actor in the 50s and early 60s and stuff. And you look at him and, you know, he looked like that Ian Fleming commissioned illustration. Maybe he would have worked out. And and Young ended up directing him in a film he made in, you know, 1964 or something. But... Um, Richard Hamilton declined the role because he was under contract to a rival movie studio at the time. So he couldn't take the role. And he even said, there's a great quote by Hamilton where he goes, you know, I had to turn the part down, but they gave it to Connery, who was totally wrong for the part. <laughs> but in being wrong, he ended up being the right guy because he made it funny. He was referring Ham Richard Hamilton was to Connery's quips. He goes, by making it funny, he turned the thing on its head, and that's why Bond was successful. So that was another actor's point of view, a British actor on the success of Connery as the actor who turned the role down. Right. And 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 because Fleming had written that character as upper class and sophisticated, and yet right. Connery was working class and Scottish. and Scottish, so yeah. Fleming couldn't have been happy originally with that casting. He was not. He was not. Um, but he went along with it. But it really wasn't, I believe, until the success of Doctor No, 
made him come around. I think once he, like everybody else, once he saw Connery on screen, I think he was sold. And, um, you know, he was a big fan of From Russia With Love. He came to the set. And then, you know, right after From Russia With Love, you know, he didn't live to see the success of Goldfinger. He died in the summer of 64, six months before Goldfinger premiered. So he really never got to see the kind of Bond mania that hits with Goldfinger. But I believe he came around. One, maybe I don't know when he came around to endorse Connery. Maybe he saw rushes or early shots of Dr. No. I'm not sure. But I believe once he saw Dr. No, it was like, yeah, you know. But, yeah, I mean, there's that English scottish rivalry and you know a lot of uh, bad blood between those two the english think the scottish are below them and low class and connery was aware of that he's fiercely scottish and his whole life you know he donated his salary or to diamonds or forever to some scottish educational trust so there's a lot of backstory to fleming a real english aristocrat just like just like um terence young was you know and who knows what their private prejudices might have been against the Scottish. But that's the way they saw he was Connery when he came on was a, a, a like a diamond in the rough. Right. And and Terence Young took him under his wing and really polished him with clothes, with his appearance, with his manners, the whole wine, all that English stuff with the wines and all that, you know, things about that was Terence Young. So we have to talk about Dr. No. Uh, <laughs> Joseph Wiseman, who there's a Canadian connection there. I believe he was a Canadian-American. Yes, nice In, Jewish boy. Yeah, interesting choice playing, uh, you know, a Caucasian playing a, uh, an Asian character. How did that come but, about? But that, but that was done in those days. And look, here we are 60 years later, and we're still dealing with issues of Caucasian actors playing Asian roles. So this is 60 years ago when most um, Asian roles were given to Americans and they put makeup on them. Right, right. But here's the thing about Joseph Wiseman as Dr. No. And I think I'm really the only one to point this out because I've never read it anywhere. But how do you think Joseph Wiseman got the role for Dr. No? I don't know. Okay, so you know I'm a big fan of The Twilight Zone, Mm -hmm. right? Yes. Okay, so what if I told you, in 1961, in wait, so let's, no, it was early 62, in the third season of The Twilight Zone, Serling writes an episode that airs probably in the early spring of 62, which is just when they start filming Dr. No in Jamaica. They do the Pinewood indoor scenes later. Right. But all the Jamaican scenes were shot first. While they're shooting in Jamaica, an episode of The Twilight Zone airs that Serling writes called One More Paul Bear. And it's all about a wealthy New York industrialist named Paul Radin who builds himself an underground bomb shelter and decks it out like a total multimedia man cave of 1962. (laughs) He's a rich, aristocratic, brilliant, articulate, erudite, 
man wearing an ascot and holding a cigarette holder. Does this sound at all familiar? <laughs> yeah, Dr. No. He's a, and he talks. What I'm basically trying to say is when you watch this episode, it's Rod Serling writing the template for the Bond villain. Aristocratic, brilliant, you know, multi-million dollar, but a megalomaniac. And when you watch the Serling character and the way he talks and the way he moves, it's Dr. No. I guarantee you, Twilight Zone was popular. I guarantee you when they're figuring out, because they didn't need Dr. No in Jamaica. Right. All the Dr. No scenes were shot in Pinewood. Right, right. Right? So, so I guarantee you somebody saw that Twilight Zone episode and said, here's your Dr. No. And where was Dr. No? In an underground lair in that island. Exactly. So so I'm telling you, they saw Joseph Wiseman and they cast him as Dr. No. They put on makeup to make him look Asian. And that's how you get Dr. No. But Serling is the uncredited, unacknowledged, and I might <laughs> be the only one pointing this out. But I'm telling you, go watch that episode and you tell me if that's not the template for Dr. No. More of my conversation with Arlen Schumer when Conspiracy Unlimited returns. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. C60 Evo delivers the miracle molecule, ESS60. It's pure carbon 60. Why not love your body and share C60 Evo with those you love? ESS60 from C60 Evo is a mega antioxidant for increased strength, endurance, flexibility, and a deeper sleep. It's great for pets too. I take a tablespoon every day and so does the mighty Aphrodite. We're both sleeping better than we have in years. And during the day, we have such tremendous energy and vitality. We're both pain-free. In a landmark peer-reviewed animal study in Paris, France, rats fed ESS60 lived twice their normal lifespan. Go to c60evo.com slash Richard hyphen or click on the C60Evo link in the episode notes. Use the code EVRS at checkout and save 10%. ESS60 from C60Evo. Order your miracle in a bottle today. Theoretical physicists say that there's as many as 12 hyperdimensions. Here are just three of them. Conspiracy Unlimited. Conspiracy Unlimited. Conspiracy Unlimited. Pretty cool, huh? Uh, here's an extra one. Conspiracy Unlimited. Hey, how about one more? Conspiracy Unlimited. And the great thing is we have six hyperdimensions left. Conspiracy Unlimited. Five. I admire your courage, Miss... Uh... Trench. Sylvia Trench. I admire your luck, Mr. Bond. James Bond.
pop culture historian Arlen Schumer is here, and we're discussing the canon of James Bond and the first Bond film, Dr. No, released in 1962. We were talking about other casting choices for James Bond, and you had mentioned Hoagie Carmichael. I've never heard that. That's a wild story. I had heard that for Dr. No at one time, they had, speaking of songwriters and so forth, they had thought about Noel Coward. Okay, so Ian Fleming sent a telegram to Noel Coward asking him, would he consider playing Dr. No? And Noel Coward, who visited the set in Jamaica, I show a picture in my webinar of Connery and him arm in arm, but Coward sends back the telegram to Fleming and it said, you want me to play Dr. No? My answer is no, no, no. <laughs> but once you've seen Joseph Wiseman, I mean, you can't imagine anybody else in that role. I mean, no coward. Right. Are you kidding me? It would have been wimpy. Um, Christopher Lee, who was Ian Fleming's cousin, was he considered? See, once again, you're asking me things I don't really know about. Um, I don't know about how many other Dr. Knows they cast. That's not really my area of okay. knowledge. Well, you, we were talking about inside, you know, the scenes inside Pinewood and those wonderful sets, and so we have to talk about Ken Adams. Yeah. Ken Adam, singular, no Adams. Adam. Adam. Yeah. Ken Adam is, I make it a point in my webinar series, the reason why I believe the first four films are the canon is because they're the only films that have the same exact, pretty much, with the exception of one or two little asterisks, the same creative crew from the editor Peter Hunt, the photographer Ted Moore, the the music, the, the direction, Terrence Young did three of the four films. They were all intact, starting with You Only Live Twice, 967, that Terrence Young is not there, they don't have the same crew. And that's why I believe that's a different era. But the first four films have a consistent creative feel to them. And even though Guy Hamilton directed the third film, Goldfinger, which many aficionados of Bond consider the best film, I maintain that if you did not know that Guy Hamilton directed Goldfinger, you would swear that the first four films were all directed by the same director because I maintain that Hamilton had a template to follow that had already been created by Young and company in the first two films. And by keeping the same creative crew, I believe Hamilton basically let them do their thing and, and shepherded the movie. But I don't believe Goldfinger is distinct from the other Bond films. I believe it has the same exact tone and style. Even though each of the four films is unique and different, I don't believe, because a lot of Bond people, I've had these discussions, they feel, oh, but hot Guy Hamilton directed Goldfinger. That's the best film. Well, I maintain that some directors are stewards. They're traffic managers when they've got a great cinematographer and a great editor and you know what I mean? And when they've got that creative team intact, you know, it's like when a great manager, a coach of a football team retires, you know, when Bill Walsh retired from the 49ers after winning four Super Bowls, whatever the hell he won with uh, Joe Montana, 
He handed the same team to George Seifert, his assistant coach, who went on to win two Super Bowls because he had the same exact team. Right, right. So while he was a new coach, he basically shepherded the same players. And I believe that's what Guy Hamilton did. So this gets back to Ken Adam. Ken Adam was a, was a crucial member of that Bond creative team. And he designed three of the first four films. He didn't do From Rush With Love because he was busy working on Dr. Strangelove with Kubrick. Right, The War Room. I mean, that's... Call, and uh, The War Room oh, yeah. was based on the Dr. No set where he's interrogating his underling, Professor Dent, the guy that Connery shoots in cold blood. But that classic scene where there's that skylight. Yes. That very eerie-looking room. That's the first exotic room that Ken Adam does for the Bond films. That's our introduction to Ken Adam. And that scene alone got him hired by Kubrick to do the war room in Dr. Strangelove. So he did two Doctor no, two doctor films in a row. Right, Dr. No, Dr. Strange. And then his art director assistant, Sid Kane, very talented in his own right, he did the production design for From Rush With Love. But if you notice, From Rush With Love doesn't have any futuristic sets. They didn't need any real Ken Adam type designs for From Rush With Love, but that's also what makes From Rush With Love unique. I maintain what's great about the first four films and why they're the canon is that each of the four films is unique and has something the other films don't. So when people ask me, what's your favorite Bond film or what do you think the best Bond film is? I maintain the first four Bond films are equal because they all have some flaws. Um, but they are all great and brilliant in their own unique ways. And starting with Dr. No, what makes Dr. No unique, other than it being the first in the franchise, is because it introduces us, it ushers in the 1960s. Once he visits Dr. No, the movie turns from a pretty naturalistic, realistic spy film Halfway through, it becomes the modern Bond film with the futuristic sets and the evil genius megalomaniac and his high-tech structure and then the explosion of the island at the end. All the tropes, all of the stations of the Bond cross are unveiled in Dr. No's second half. So it's the template for the Bond movies and for so many imitations. The evil organization Spectre. All the things we take for granted now were initiated with the second half of Dr. No. And that's why you can't take anything away from Dr. No. Is it as big and brassy as Thunderball or Goldfinger? No. It was the first film. But as the first film, it's brilliant and unique in its own way. I mean, Dr. No, the villain is unique. Everybody says Goldfinger is the best Bond villain. Well, Dr. No is pretty cool with those metal hands. Right, right. You know what I mean? So so I just think, you know, 
Dr. No can't be dismissed. Rush with Love, it doesn't have the exotic sets because it didn't need them, but it's the most Hitchcockian hmm. of Bond films. Yeah. Um, so, so that's what makes From Rush with Love unique. Goldfinger, of course, you know, since it is considered the best, I I like Goldfinger, I love Goldfinger, but I don't consider it better than the other three films. I have a more sentimental attachment to Thunderball because I was young enough or old enough to have seen it in the movie theater when it came out. Um, and I remember, even though I was, I was a child, I remember the blockbuster feeling of it, the lines around the block and all that. So, um, but I don't rate Thunderball better than, than any of the other films either. So to me, the first four films, I call it the canon, because just like the four books of the Bible or whatever you want to say, you can't really choose one over the other. They all have equal weight right. in my book. Right. Um, I just wanted to come back to Ken Adam for a minute because yeah. the um, Crab Key, that, I mean, that was that was done on a, like a shoestring budget too, wasn't it? Like I said, a million dollars in wow. 1962 dollars. But they, you know, when creative people are given a tight budget, the degree of their creativity is the degree that they can create great stuff, and it's not about the money, it's about the creativity. Right. And that's what you get with Ken Adam, but you know, as a production designer, he is considered and is, you know, one of the all-time greats, and the Bond films would not be the Bond films without Ken Adam, period. They would not be the Bond films without Peter Hunt uh, doing that incredible editing. And I maintain without Terrence Young setting the style and the tone. And, uh, you know, the photography by Ted Moore, while it might not be the standout cinematography, I mean, I'm, I don't think he's discussed uh, as much in the greatness realm as Ken Adams is. But still, it's the consistency of Ted Moore doing all the films that, as a creative person, I'm attracted to that because that's what makes, you know, a continuing series great is when you've got the same creative crew working on it. It's just like in sports when they want to maintain the team and not lose players to free agency. You know, it's hard to keep a team together. You know, yes, the you Tampa become a Bay Buccaneers just won the Super Bowl. And the first thing they did was pay all those players to keep them there. But the Bond films, the first four films, they kept the same creative crew together up until the fifth film. And that's why it jumps the shark with You Only Live Twice. Uh, let's just spend a few moments talking about Honey Rider, Ursula Andress. Yes. Um, the casting there, uh, was she the first and only choice? or? Once again, I don't know if they were looking at other actresses, but Ursula Andress, you know, she was Swedish-born. She was um, kind of like an actress, model, artist. She studied art in Rome. And then when she landed in Hollywood in the mid-50s, because of her looks, she was immediately signed to a movie deal with one studio. But her Eng she spoke like five languages, but English wasn't one of them. And her English was never good enough. I think even in... Um, the movie, Dr. No, I think her voice is dubbed. I don't think that's her natural voice. Interesting. Which actress. But the point is, she didn't get a lot of roles in the late 50s 
because of her inability to speak good English. And then she marries this very well-known fashion photographer, John Derrick. Hmm. Uh, and that's what probably elevates her into the Hollywood circles that eventually land her the, the Bond role. And that role made her an instant superstar. And basically, it established her career the rest of her life. She said that white bikini right, right. Was, was her life. Sure, yeah. After that movie, I think that sent the bikini sales skyrocketing, no you doubt. Know something? I consider, I don't consider her the great Bond girl of the first movie. Sylvia Trench? I, I, yeah, I'm a big, big fan of Eunice Gason, who just recently passed away, I think a year ago. She, if you remember is not only the woman Bond meets at the casino when he's introduced, but this is 1962, pre-liberated woman, pre-sexual revolution, or really at the dawn of it, because I believe Betty Friedan writes The Feminine Mystique in 1962 or something like that. So it's in the early 60s. If you look at that first encounter, she picks Bond up. Bond doesn't pick her up. You know, it's fashionable to look back now with our woke culture. Oh, Connery's Bond was a little rapey. You know, they like to use that word. Oh, very sexist. He basically forces himself on women. You know, that's been a popular... And Connery, in real life, gave fuel to that fire in that famous Playboy interview when he talked about, you know, it's okay to hit a woman every now and then. Right. So, so because of that, there is a tendency to look back at the Connery Bond and brand him as sexist. But when you actually look at Dr. No, remember, he's the gentleman spy. Connery, she comes on to him. And Connery very nicely hands her his card and said, uh, perhaps lunch another day. He doesn't immediately bet her down. He gives her his card and says... You know, let's do lunch and perhaps dinner after. There's my number on the card and walks away. With no intention necessarily that. And then what does she do? The very next scene, somehow, she gets her, she, she breaks into Bond's apartment. She's playing golf, time, playing golf the in the nude. Right. <laughs> Well, with the shirt on. Right, right. Not Originally, that was nude. supposed to be in the nude, wasn't it? Wasn't there supposed to be some a lot more nudity in that film originally? You know, again, I don't know about that. Huh. Um, but the key point I want to make about Sylvia Trench is that not only does she try to pick up Bond in the casino, mm -hmm. not only does she then break in and get into his, his uh, apartment, but then, even then, Bond is trying to be the gentleman and says, listen, uh, you know, I like you, but I got to be on a plane in two hours to Jamaica. So he actually is trying to defer. Right, right. She is the one that seduces Bond. And that's why I think Sylvia Trench, as, as Eunice Gason and Sylvia Trench, is this liberated woman ahead of her time mm. who is proud of her sexuality, in control of her sexuality, and she goes out with her girl power and gets what she wants. Right. Now, 
I'm not endorsing breaking and entering. <laughs> but my point is she seduces Bond. And what's even more remarkable that a lot of people don't ever talk about because they're busy wanting to make Connery into a rapist. Right. In the second film, what do we see? Bond is introduced to us in From Russia Love still dating Sylvia Trench. In the opening scene in From Russia Love, he's on a little canoe, right. canoodling, right. unintended. Basically, what does that tell you? That he was faithful to her. That after having sex with her in his apartment and Dr. No, he came back to England and saw her. So here is the Connery Bond being a gentleman, being non-aggressive sexually. Yes, once she came on to him, he dove right in as any real man would. But then he is faithful to her. Interesting, interesting. Enough said? Enough said. Lois Maxwell as Miss Moneypenny. Uh, so her story is that she had tried to work with Terrence Young a decade earlier on one of his uh, films when Young was making films with the producer Cubby Broccoli. And somehow things didn't work out, but Young um, promised her that if ever anything came up, he would remember her, and that's exactly what happened. And Young was a very faithful director. I mean, I think, uh, what's her name? Uh, the, the femme fatale in Thunderball, Luciano Puzzle, whatever, some Italian name. Like, they remained friends the rest of their lives. Like, he was not just the director that once the rap party ended, disappeared. He stayed in touch with his actors. And they loved Terrence Young. So when he promised Lois Maxwell, he came through on that promise. And that's why she was cast as Moneypenny. Hmm. Was there some talk about them actually being, re her and her playing Sylvia Trench rather than the other way around? Okay, I never heard of that. Oh, okay. But to me, the salient point that I learned in my research in doing these webinars on the Connery Bond is that Maxwell revealed in an interview, I think years later, that she and Connery had kind of worked out like a little backstory amongst themselves that the reason for their little romantic interplay in the office was that when they both started out working for M when they were younger, that they had a one night stand, that they had a little fling but that they immediately both ended it because they knew if they were going to work professionally that there was no way they could maintain a relationship. And that was the foundation for the playful touching and the ah. and the real warmth that you know that they felt for each other. And that's because they basically once consummated that when they were younger. Interesting. So I really, I like that backstory. Interesting. I'd read once where someone said that uh, Eunice Gason exuded sexuality and Lois Maxwell exuded punctuality. <laughs> well, you know, there's a type for everyone. I'm sure. sure there's plenty of people that would not have refused a roll in the hay with money penny. <laughs> <laughs> Very well I done. I just came up with that. Thank you. Wonderful. All right. So, 
Uh, Dr. No uh, is still available. Uh, people can, can see the recorded webinar. They can go to arlenschumer.com. Well, right now, I mean, I only did it yesterday, so the, the video's not up. But I would say by next week or so, I'll be posting it on my YouTube channel. But if people right now, after hearing this, really want to see it, let them just reach out to me. They can contact me through my website. There's a newsletter and a contact form. And I'll just send them the link. It exists in the cloud to watch the webinar before I edit it and put it on my, on my YouTube channel. All right. So so that's something people can do. And then from Russia with Love, Goldfinger, Thunderball, all coming up probably over the course of the next three months. The next three months, the, the third Wednesday of each of those months, if all goes well, that's when I'll be doing it. Um, and the reason why it's the third Wednesday, because the fourth Wednesday I'm doing my greatest comic artists of the Silver Age webinar series. So I have that reserved. And I try to do Wednesday because it's middle of the week, um, breaks up the week for a lot of people. And uh, that's why I'm trying to do my webinars on Wednesday. The ones I'm doing with New York Adventure Club, I, that's based on their schedule, not on my own you know, schedule. So that's different. Right. So we've got uh, Christ in Comics coming up Tuesday, March the 30th. Right. Now that's with New York Adventure Club. So people just go to nyadventureclub.com. The tickets are only $10. And if you can't see it live, they allow you to see a recording of the webinar through their platform for up to a week afterwards. A lot of people with webinars, the minute they hear them, they're like, oh, they know their live events. And if, they're, if they think they're gonna be busy, they don't buy a ticket. Oh, I can't make it that day. We're trying to enforce in all of our promotion and publicity that just buy a ticket, and even if you can't see it live, you can see a recording of it. Right, right. And the same thing with my webinars. You know, just in a sense, you know, get the information, the meeting and all that stuff, because even if you just go to it, you'll have access to the link to see the webinar afterwards. So, you know, people have to just realize, don't worry if you can't make it live. All right, and then finally, the Jack Kirby webinar, of course, the as you, as you point out, the Elvis, the Babe Ruth of comics. Jack Kirby, yeah. that's happening Wednesday, March 31st. Right, and that's on my own information, that through my website, that'll be at six o'clock. And that's the last Wednesday of each month. Uh, the greatest artist of the Silver Age, based on my book, The Silver Age of Comic Art, that people can get also through my website. So I'm doing one a month the entire year of 2021, the last Wednesday of every month. So I think in January, I did Carmine Infantino, the guy who did the red suited Flash character. Then in February, I did Kurt Swan, the baby boomer Superman artist. And now the end of March, the great Jack Kirby. All right. Well, Arlen, it's always a wild ride and um, a lot of fun. Thank you so much. And again, ArlenSchumer.com. Oh, my always pleasure. Pleasure. Yeah. Yeah, ArlenSchumer.com. Just spell my name right. S-C-H, just like Chuck and Amy. I'm the unknown third Schumer. <laughs> All the best, buddy. Okay, Richard. Thank you, man. Okay, before I dim the lights in my little studio beneath the stairs, I'll be back in a few moments to tell you a little bit about an upcoming episode.
If you enjoy Conspiracy Unlimited, why not become a Conspiracy Unlimited Plus member? For just $1.99 per month, you'll gain access to two bonus, exclusive commercial-free episodes per month, plus access to my back catalog of episodes. To subscribe, just go to conspiracyunlimitedpodcast.com and click on Gain Access to Premium Episodes. Again, go to conspiracyunlimitedpodcast.com and click on Get Access to Premium Episodes or click on the link in the episode notes. Conspiracy Unlimited Plus for less than $2 per month. Why not sign up today? Coming up next time, the connections between Jim Jones and his People Temple cult and a who's who of California Democrat politicians. And that's just an uncanny amount of power that a man can demand of the man who's running for president, that I'm going to see your wife. And it was more an order than, can I get an appointment? It had to be done on his terms, under his will, right away. What man has that sort of power? And the people that were his devotees and followers that are still in influence today should just be absolutely frightful, especially when we're looking at the way the world is today, which is pretty much being operated as a cult. Until then, I'm Richard Serrett. So long for now. A new Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett drops every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at ConspiracyUnlimitedPodcast.com. Blow your mind. That is all for now. Oh, and remember to share and give a five-star review because we have huge egos and need love. We're like cats. We need... We need constant petting. <laughs>